Good morning, and I, my name is Dr. Janet Anderson-Yang. I am excited to be spending the next couple hours with you today and then also next week and the week after for a couple of hours each day, each Wednesday. Um, so this is a series that, that all hangs together. We're going to talk about grief and loss and grief therapy and a lot of different angles of the topics. So um, it, it does, we, we'll get into more of the interventions starting kind of halfway through next week. Today and for part of next week, we'll be talking about grief and loss and then talking more about therapeutic interventions. But all the things we're talking about today will lead into kind of different details of how, how we'll talk about interventions. Um, so just a little bit about me. I am a licensed clinical psychologist and I have specialized particularly in working with older adults, although I also do work with younger adults. Um, but I think the topic of grief therapy is become something that I've done a lot of and talked with supervisees a lot of a lot about given that older adults have obviously a lot of losses, but as you all know, younger people have losses too. Um, and that's been especially true in the last couple of years. But it's a topic that I it really kind of was drawn to even before I was working primarily with older adults. And I, I once heard a supervisor early in my training say that all grief, all therapy is grief therapy. And I was kind of surprised by that comment and I've kind of been mulling that over ever since. Um, and I think there's a way in which that makes a lot of sense to me that so many client uh, mental health issues and problems underlying the overt symptoms are losses, losses and trauma. Um, and if we can help the client heal from the losses that often helps alleviate the symptoms of different sorts. So that's just one of the reasons I'm, I've been really interested in this topic for, for many years. Um, and I think as we talk about people's losses and we help them work through the loss and the feelings around the loss, we can really help them reconnect more closely with themselves and with other people. So I think it's, I think this form of therapy can be very, can be related very much to obvious losses, but can be related to deeper historical losses as well. So that's a little bit about me. I work at Heritage Clinic, which is a DMH contracted facility, and we primarily work with older adults. We are based in Pasadena, but we also have offices in Lancaster, Long Beach, and Los Angeles and LA. So we're, we're kind of around the county. So that said, here's the kind of a little outline of what we're gonna do um, today in the next two weeks. Today, we're gonna talk largely about losses people face, aspects of grief, research on what some people have called stages of grief, signs of resolved and unresolved grief, and little bit of reactions to different types of losses. I'm gonna 
especially talk a little bit about homeless people without houseless people um, and also kind of some of the issues that have gone on the last couple of years with COVID and um, the lock, lockdown and um, the pandemic, some of the different losses that have happened and some cultural differences on grief and loss, grief rituals. That'll be today. And then next week, we'll talk more, a little bit about grief reactions. And then we'll talk about different forms of grief therapy according to a couple different major authors. Um, and then on the June 1st, we'll talk about, we'll be talking about techniques next week, but also go into more detail on techniques the third week. Um, so we are, you know, not a huge group. So I think we'll do some um, participant interaction via chat and some, I think we'll, we'll go ahead and have you be able to unmute and speak up. So we'll, we'll kind of mix, mix that up. Um, uh, anyway, so welcome. It's really nice to be here. Here are the learning objectives, um, which obviously go along with the outline, but I am hoping you'll learn um, some of the common reactions to losses, some of the differences between what's considered normal, in quotes, grief and complicated or unresolved grief, um, things you can do to do grief therapy, rituals that are specific to different cultures, ways grieving has been complicated due, due to the pandemic, and some of the grief reactions people who are experiencing homelessness experience. All right, and then um, if you could go ahead and write in the chat, what's you know one reason you're taking this training or what's one thing you're hoping to get out of taking this training? Just, you know, what, what are a couple of your thoughts, one of your thoughts about why did you sign up for this training? And Christina, whenever you're ready, if you wanna read them. Um, we have someone that's specifically working with children, someone that is in private practice and has been seeing a lot of patients with grief and loss. Um, another person would love to learn more uh, about interventions to better serve their clients. Um, someone, has a client, many clients dealing with loss and want to better understand how to support them through the process. Um, someone has a new client who lost a father and would like to learn more about how to support. Um, so I'm hoping to learn interventions to support younger clients who are having depression and trauma due to grief and loss. A community outreach worker who's working with adults who've recently lost loved ones and want to be able to better serve them. Um, learn more about grief related to COVID and homelessness, find helpful interventions for homeless older adults dealing with loss and grief, working with FSP client who experienced a loss, um, someone who's working primarily with clients seeking to re-engage with employment, education, and have seen a lot of unresolved grief issues uh, around grieving past dreams, unfulfilled dreams, and changes related due to COVID. Um, someone else has noticed an increased need in the community dealing with losses from pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah, various okay. type of losses, death, COVID related, clients experiencing complicated relief, um, 
and how to support clients to move forward without substance use. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, okay. There's a, a, several different angles on um, grief and loss and I, and I hope we'll be able to address most, most of those to, su to some extent. All right, thanks for sharing that. Um, all right. So that said, um, the, for this part, I'd like you to maybe just speak up or put it in the chat if you'd rather not speak up. But um, we, when we think about grief and loss, we're often the most obvious thing we think about is when someone dies. Um, that's kind of like maybe the most obvious. But obviously, our clients experience multiplicity of losses. And a couple of you put them in the chat, um, different kinds of losses, people, sometimes the death of a loved one, but one of you mentioned the loss of past dreams. You know, that's kind of a more abstract loss. Um, so lots of different kinds of things. So what are some of the losses? If you could just unmute and just say, what are some of the losses you notice in your client? Let me just write in one of you said loss of dreams. One of you said loss of father. Um, what else did you say? Well, you said loss is the homeless experience, but maybe we can go into that a little bit more. Um, now those were the specific ones you mentioned that I can remember. What are loss some of the other? Hmm? I'm sorry, I was gonna say losses from pandemic. Yeah. Loss right. of job. Loss of job. Okay. That's another specific thing. Yeah. Loss There's of lots of losses from the pandemic and maybe we can try to pull that, that out. What, what else, Christina? Uh, loss of functioning. Loss of functioning. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, lifestyle, health changes, financial changes, loss of roles, such as like being a mother or spouse due to divorce or separation, loss of family members, loss of home, loss of relationship, energy and will, breakups. Oh, there's a lot of, of them. Payments. Yep. Loss of hopes and dreams for children when a child goes to jail. Loss of independence. Loss of autonomy and physical health, loss of security, loss of purpose. Okay, well, now we're going so fast here. Well, what was the last couple you said before loss of purpose? Um, I mentioned loss of security, uh -huh. uh, loss of autonomy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In, oh, independence, um, health related. Um, we mentioned housing. Yep. Loss of family members. Um, loss of roles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So just for the quickly, I'm trying to put them in categories, which they don't all fit there. I don't have the right number of boxes but um but so you know we're talking about 
relationships, you know, loss of father, loss of family members, obviously loss of um, other kinds of family members. Like we have clients that have lost children, death, deaths of children, um, siblings, etc. Pets. Yep. Pets. That's kind of important. Um, and then, you know, in the, in the kind of financial and th this isn't exactly a full category, but with a job, loss of job, loss of finances um, can be, can, can be often be part of what causes loss of housing. And then a lot of health kinds of losses um, leading to loss of functioning lifestyle changes. Um, but many of you kind of in indicated here in this bottom box, sort of more abstract losses, loss of hopes and dreams for oneself or for one's child. You said when they were incarcerated, loss of independence or autonomy. Sometimes that's based on health losses or financial losses, loss of purpose, loss of security. So that um, those are quite, quite a few. I've got a few listed here. And, and part of the reason I go into these more specifics is I think when we're thinking about our clients and how they're impacted, we wanna you know, think really on a fine grain level of what some of their losses are. A lot of times clients are aware of the big and obvious losses, but they may not really be in touch with the fact that they're having feelings and reactions and, and some of their mental illness and their symptoms are related to more subtle kind of losses. And in our grief therapy with them, we're going to want to help get to the detail. And that's one of the, one of the um, important things about doing the grief therapy when we get to talk more, more about interventions is we want to help clients kind of really talk about their experiences, their thoughts, and their feelings about these fine-grained detailed aspects of the losses. So, you know, here's a list of some of the interpersonal losses people experience by death, but sometimes it's, it's also a more ambiguous loss when, when the person has not died, but uh, ha you ha people have been estranged or people have moved or the type of contact has, has changed. Um, and we're gonna talk some about the different, what it means when we have these different kinds of interpersonal losses but many, many of you kind of brought up some of the health-related losses, which can lead to loss of mobility, loss of energy, loss of their abilities to do things they like to do or found important, loss of pleasurable activities, loss of sexual satisfaction, loss of sensory contact or touch. Um, these kind of things can all be... Um, kind of spiral um, domino effect losses from one health loss. Um, talking about those people that are without homes right now, there's a lot of different things that get lost when a person loses their home. Um, one of you mentioned security or safety. There's also a loss of relationships of the neighborhood, friends. There's loss of control loss of familiarity and comfort and, and a loss of memories. Um, a home often contains a lot of memories. So the, when there was work-related losses, 
there's loss of money, obviously, and also loss of roles, but also loss of a sense of purpose and worthwhileness, as well as just moment to moment activity, busyness. And then several of you kind of mentioned some of the more abstract losses. Um, but, you know, I think some of the things that come up is a loss of, of a positive self-concept. A loss of the world as being a good place or a meaningful place when, when traumatic and grief, grievous things happened. Um, I think as people age or bad things, unfortunate or traumatic things happen, they sort of lose this sense that life is okay, that the world is okay, that I'm, I am okay. And that's something that can really shift a person's perspective on the world a loss of being treated with dignity and respect, um, loss of a sense of future. That's an, one thing that often comes with aging. When we're young, we think there's, you know, life is ahead of us. And then losing a sense that there's much life ahead is another loss. So these are some of the things Then, any other losses come to mind as we kind of go through this list? Someone mentioned a loss of identity. Loss of identity, yeah. A loss of kind of who you are, knowing who you are. A loss of connection to a sense of worthwhile identity. Yeah, yeah. So the next thing to kind of talk about are how do people react to losses? You know, we're going to talk about some of the, what have been talked about the five or seven quote unquote stages of grief, which is one way we talk about people reacting to, to loss. Um, but you know, we're gonna talk some about others. Um, that's an, another one where I wanna write. So what, what are some of the ways people react to losses? If you wanna speak it out or if you wanna put it into the chat, either way. What are some of the, the emotional reactions, the physical reactions, the mental reactions, the spiritual reactions, kind of the, all the different parts of a human? What are some of the ways people react to losses? Um, shame, shame. Uh, feeling depressed, depressed, guilty, mm -hmm. uh, anger, anxiety. Lack of motivation, uh -huh. isolation, resentment, resentment uh -huh. insecure, suicidal, uh, shut down. They could respond with substance use. Yeah, yeah. Uh, crying spells, um, feeling confused or wrong. Yeah, or wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, lots of things. Okay, you know, the, we're gonna talk a little bit about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is kind of the mother of grief therapy, I guess we might say, or the, she really obviously popularized the idea of the stages of grief or the phases of grief. But I, I think um, some of the, and I think some of our, our, our thoughts in, that we just had on the lat from what you put into the chat, um, 
often at the beginning, there's a, a time of kind of this shock or disbelief or denial. Um, and it, it can be kind of a disbelief, shock, numbness, depersonalization, kind of sense of unreality, like that can't have just happened. Did that really happen? Um, there's often then a whole set of feelings that kind of go with sadness, despair, depression, that kind of down, shut down, isolating kind of, kind of things um, that can feel very, very lonely. Um, there's often kinds of feelings of fear and anxiety, um, various aspects of guilt, regret, shame. One of you just mentioned shame. Um, there can be often the set of anger and resentment, um, which you mentioned. Somebody also mentioned confusion, which can also go along with kind of delusions or hallucinations, depending on how, what kind of ego strength a person has, helplessness. I think it's also important to remember some people will feel freedom and relief and often guilt goes with that. And I think we wanna be, when we talk with our clients about how they feel, I think it's important that we bring up that they might be feeling re relief and freedom because many people won't mention that themselves because they feel it's inappropriate. And another um, one that I think is really important to keep in mind is yearning. Um, it's a very difficult feeling for people to work through uh, and it can be very painful, but there's often this very hard, um, painful feeling of yearning. We also wanna think about somatic responses. What, how does the body respond? Um, and we're gonna talk some about how feelings get somaticized and, and, and caught in the body. A lot of our clients or a lot of people that don't become clients <laughs> experience a lot of emotion, a lot of trauma and a lot of grief in their body. So stomach aches, headaches, loss of energy, nausea, shakiness, weight loss, weight gain, um, increased risk of certain medical conditions, some increased risk of mortality, especially when someone very intimate or close dies. Um, sometimes that people have traumatic responses like nightmares and flashbacks when the grief is, is more, more close to trauma and that sort of Grief and trauma are not the same, but they can be very close to each other. And we can, you know, our clients maybe experience traumatic grief. One of you mentioned substance abuse, youth or sub abuse, substance use or abuse, um, which, you know, covers the gamut. Um, and then clients can have suicidal ideation or suicide, you know, completed suicide. So watching, we definitely want to be assessing for suicidal ideation and um, desire for suicide at times of losses. So these are some of the things we wanna kind of be watching out for and in inappropriate timing, in timing with our clinical judgment, kind of helping our client address these different kinds of feelings. One of the things that we'll be talking about in doing grief therapy is it is normal to have a whole range of these kinds of feelings, not necessarily all of them, but many of them. And some of our clients will get into one 
or two realms of these feelings and get stuck because it's most familiar to them to be either angry all the time or to be sad all the time. And one of our jobs as grief therapists doing grief therapy will be to nudge them into trying to help them experience not necessarily all of them, but many of these different realms of feeling. Okay, so um, while Kubler, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is the one person that's best known for what we call different phases or aspects of grieving, there've been many others that talk about grieving. And, and I, these are some of the authors, um, mental health practitioners that we're gonna cover and talk about their different perspectives on grieving. Um, so just so you know, this is where we're going. It, we wanna talk about what's typical and normal for grieving and what's, uh, and obviously I'm putting those words in quotes because there is no exact normal or typical, but there's is healthy grieving. And then there's grieving that gets off, off course or doesn't stay on course or doesn't go through the whole journey. Um, and that's where we head into grief therapy. So Kubler-Ross, um, developed her theory when studying a person's reactions to their own impending death when they got a cancer diagnosis. Her book, her original book on death and dying was based on case studies and not on research. So I think that, you know, is important to know and that for some reason, her her thoughts on the five stages of grieving really caught hold in the in the public eye and has sort of taken on a life of its own. Um, so her stages of grief were shock, disbelief and denial, then anger, then bargaining. This couldn't be true. What can I do to undo this? I need this not to be true, to depression, to acceptance. And while the research on this is not, um, doesn't really hold that, does not hold this up as stages, it is very um, intuitively close to what is a, a, an average or normal grief process. And so I think it's very, very helpful, but we just need to know that it is not going in, doesn't go in stages and it is not universal, um, but it is really common. Um, some people have talked about seven. So with the shock and disbelief and then denial, anger, bargaining, guilt, then depression, then acceptance and hope. Not everybody feels the guilt. And that is, we'll talk about this later, but being stuck in guilt is one sign that, that it might be complicated grief that really does need grief therapy. Um, so another just point in this, general trend of either of these five or seven. The first one is really where a person is like, kind of like in deep person, um, a little bit dissociated in shock and disbelief. And it's been my experience that that is not a good time to start grief therapy. And with, with the increased interest in mental health interventions, we've, we get a lot of referrals of someone who says, my mother, just passed away, my dad needs grief therapy or, or 
you know, a, a family member saying another family member needs grief therapy right after a loss. And I'm kind of not found that that is helpful to try to get someone to talk right after a loss, that, they, that there's something protective about being in this almost, it, it's very, very common to go through a period of shock or disbelief or denial. And I think that there's something healthy about that. Um, just recently, a couple months ago, I heard a podcast by David Kessler, who apparently worked with Kubler-Ross later in her life. And he worked pretty closely with her. And he says that she never, never intended the rubric, he used the word rubric, to be stages in a progression. Um, so I think that was really just good to, to hold in mind. We'll come back to some other things that he, that he has to say. So I want to talk also about other people that have talked about different rubrics, I guess you could call them, on mourning, phases of mourning. So John Bowlby, who was also writing in the 60s, he did a lot of studies of um, uh, babies who are, lost their mothers. And so he came up with these four phases, which have some, some significant correlation with Kubler-Ross's um, as, aspects of, of grief. And I think several of these writers, their, their aspects, phases, stages, whatever we, word we use, have a lot of similarity because he, the human grieving process has a course that we can and a set of um, feelings and reactions that are kind of common or quote unquote normal. Um, so he was studying the initial response to separation from the mother, from a, a, a very young child. And he noticed how they initially protest and attempt to get that lost love back. Then they go into despair and then they go into emotional detachment. So his phases that he named went from numbing to yearning or searching, trying to get that lo the lost mother back, to getting kind of disorganized, to going into despair. And then with um, healing, we can help a client come back into reorganization or with time or with the human element of healing can come into reorganization. So that you know isn't so different from Kubler-Ross's rubric. Are there any, um, let's see, let me just go into one more and then I'll, I'll pause for comments or questions. But J. William Warden, he um, wrote the book called Grief Counseling and Grief Therapy, which came out originally in the 80s and now he's I think he's on the fourth or fifth edition. It's, a, it's one of my favorite books on grief therapy. So if I were to recommend one book, it would be Grief Counseling and Grief Therapy by him. He is currently a professor of psychology at um, uh, Biola School of, <clears throat> uh, not Biola, Rosemead, Rosemead School of Psychology. Um, and what he says, the phases or the tasks of a quote unquote normal mourning 
are to accept that this really happened. So to move out of that denial phase, then to experience the pain of grief. And as we get into grief therapy, this is the meat of, will be the meat of therapy, helping the client experience the pain of grief and the, the whole range of the pain, like all those different kinds of feelings I had up, we had up on the slide earlier. Um, and that's often where people get stuck and where grief therapy is really helpful. Then adjusting to life without the thing or ability or the person that was lost. Um, and then investing in new relationships or activities. So that's what he says are the kind of four phases of mourning. So here's just one more, a couple more approaches to what would be considered a normal or a needed kind of approach to mourning. Um, acknowledging the reality of the death, moving toward the pain of the loss. So this is kind of similar to wardens. Converting the relationship of the person who died from one of presence to one of memory. And this is an important step that I think Wolf felt and then the next author I talk about really adds that it's not that the person, the thing, the ability is gone completely because we have a memory of the thing, person. And I think this is another important, really important step in grief therapy is converting what was lost into an understanding of how that ability, person, thing is still present in my life now. Um, what do I have? What do I still have from what was lost? A lot of times people are very, very aware of what's lost. And they kind of don't mm, value or forget to value how, how there is a retained aspect of that person place thing. And that's something that we can really help to build in the client, help the client to build. Developing a new self-identity without that, like, who are you now? Yes, a lot of you was lost with what was lost, but you still have a you now, who is that now? Searching for meaning and continuing to receive support from others, the others that are still in your life or that you need to develop in your life. And then Robert Niemeyer is also a current um, psychologist or psychiatrist, I, I'm forgetting which, and that he, he's writing a lot and we're gonna have some videos of him talking next week or the week after, maybe one next week and the yeah, one week after. So he talks about um, the event story of the loss is processed as the client person oscillates between engaging in the pain and defending from the pain. So that's another concept that we'll bring in to doing the therapy is we wanna help the client really engage the pain that they have perhaps been defending against, but we also wanna let them defend from the pain. We don't wanna quote unquote, hold their feet to the fire too much. Um, so we, this is kind of part of the clinical judgment in doing grief therapy is helping them to feel the pain of the loss, but also giving them room to, to um, 
to defend against the pain of the loss. So it's an oscillation. He talks about oscillating. We wanna help a person understand the backstory of the relationship, which um, has some security. What was lost, the security of the relationship that was lost, but also what's internalized about that. Um, acknowledging the finality of the loss, noticing that emotions remain, people don't get over them, but they change. They change. Um, and then that we, we revise the mental representation of the person that, or the thing that's gone. And then we construct a new narrative, a, a new sense of meaning and redefine what life goals are now. So that is sort of a process that he sees um, with normal grief. It's a little, little less sound bites, a little more complicated than some of the others, but there's a lot of wisdom in what he has to say and, and we'll come back to, to him. Um, so just sort of adding with David Kessler, who was the fellow that worked with Kubler-Ross later in her life, he also said, talks about finding new meaning as the sixth stage of grief. Another really important part. Um, any thoughts, Christine? Not any other comments that? Yeah, there was a comment and a question earlier. Someone commented, when I was a student intern, I used William Warden 10 weeks. I felt like I had a textbook outcome. It was great reinforcement of a positive outcome when the client and therapist really worked together for a shared goal. Hmm. And then someone asked, how important do you think it is to actually provide the psychoeducation around these theories related to stages, phases, tasks? I think a little bit, it is important. I think it's really helpful to clients. Um, it gives them a sense, a little bit of a sense of hope that there's a, a course, um, not a, you know, not lockstep stages, but that, um, well, here's, here's some words here, a, a roller coaster, a process, a journey. I think kind of going over them, but not, but really also in the way you phrase it, may, holding it lightly, kind of presenting it lightly. Like these are, this is kind of what people tend to go through or might go through not giving them like, oh, you're wrong if you're not, you know, not, you don't want to say it in a way that a client might take it like they have to, or they should, or it's wrong if they're not. But I, I do think giving them a general idea of an outline and maybe saying there's several different theories so that it doesn't sound like you're supposed to go through these exact five or six stages, but it gives them a sense of, okay, I'm here now, but yeah, there's some hope that it's going to shift and change and come to another another place. So I think that's I think that can be really helpful. So anyway, here are some other uh, metaphors or or yeah, I guess they're metaphors. Um, words that kind of are maybe more accurate than stages. So I just want I mean, I've already said this, but I'm going to go into just a little bit of the research about why we shouldn't really use the word stages, but somehow that word just keeps coming back. Um, so 
In one study, participants reported feeling acceptance earlier in the process of grieving and not only at the end. So that's kind of interesting that it does not seem to take going through um, shock, uh, depression, anger, bargaining to get to acceptance that many people um, reported feeling some acceptance earlier in the grieving process. And the, some, many participants also reported more yearning than anger or depression. So that um, the, the, I think Kula Ross used the word bargaining. Let me see, let's go back to her. Use the word bargaining, but I think the term yearning is a little bit different. And I think this research found that people really felt a sense of yearning, which Bowlby talks about yearning, searching. The bargaining word just kind of includes that idea. Um, so Warden talks about the pain of grief, which would include that kind of yearning. So anyway, um, I think that's really important in one piece of research. Another piece of research kind of concluded that grief is not a series of steps, but a grab bag of symptoms that come and go and eventually lift. So I think that that's important in that the come and go, come and go, it's like um, Niemeyer say that the, the feelings oscillate between the pain and um, the defending against the pain and eventually lift, not completely. I think for some people, well, for many, many, many people, the pain will, change, but it's not going to necessarily ever be gone or gotten rid of. And, but the other parts of, of life can take on more meaning, more um, oomph, more energy. And the, the pain of the loss becomes a little bit more um, just sort of in the background. Bonanno is currently, has in the past and currently done, continues to do quite a bit of work on grief. And they found that of 300 older bereaved spouses, 66% um, showed a pattern of resilience. So two thirds of them had very little levels of depressed mood after the death of their spouse. They, but, and he called that pattern of grieving resilience. He found that 10% showed some depression immediately after the loss, but very little by six months. He found that 15% had been depressed before the loss and continued to be depressed even at a couple years. Wait, 48 months is four years, four years later. So they had been depressed before and they were still depressed. 9% showed elevated depression about six months later, which persisted to 18 months and then gradually decreased and resolved by 48 months. So I think this, you know, when you take a community population, most people go through grieving and are resilient. They go through a normal grieving, healthy grieving, and they have the healthy aspects of grief um, and, and a grieving support system and a process but some percentage show more struggle. And those are the people that we might find in our population or that would be coming for, for help for grief therapy. 
Um, this is a later study which found something kind of similar that 70% reacted with resilience. So again, two thirds, three quarters respond resiliently. About a quarter with moderate difficulties that improved with time and a small percentage that had prolonged difficulties. So the last category would be people we would be helping and some of the people in the middle category. I'm not sure you know, what the role of grief therapy is for the, for the people that are going through a resilient or healthy reaction. Nothing wrong with doing grief therapy with them, but it may not, probably is not needed. Um, so the, this is kind of his label on, on some of the trajectories of grief, resilience, recovery, chronic dysfunction, and then uh, this one wasn't in the other slides, but delayed grief or trauma where the dis distress appears later. Um, and th those will be some of the people we do see in therapy where they don't grieve during the loss or right after the loss, but something triggers the grief later in life. And sometimes that, that's part of our work to, to realize that the person that comes in to see us with symptoms of various psychiatric diagnoses, underneath it is complicated grief. Um, so Strobe and all did a, a literature review and concluded a lack of evidence regarding stages of grief and caution that prescribing stages of grief can be harmful. So the question about psychoeducation, we certainly don't wanna prescribe stages of grief, but, but that's different than presenting them. Um, and then I think it's important to remember that some people will feel better after a loss. So for example, caregivers of people with dementia, and we wanna help them verbalize that they feel relief if they do and help them to not feel guilty or ashamed that they feel that way. Okay, I wanna talk a little more about what can help us decide, huh, is this person grieving in a healthy way or is this problematic um, and needs some intervention? Christina, are there any comments there that you wanna read or? Um, yeah, there was a comment someone was talking about um how grief therapy can involve a lot of validation, also helping normalize the roller coaster of emotions and the fluidity of the process. Mm -hmm. And they also commented yeah. that they think the challenge is when uh, we feel that loss is abnormal, such as a child dying before a parent. Um, normal human development has us believe that an adult child will bury their parent, but parents aren't usually expected to bury a child. It seems to go against what we believe or expect. Yeah. And um, they think that is right. where resilience is tested. Yes. Yeah. When it's not, I mean, we all have sort of so, some culturally defined, but some just very humanly defined. And that's one that's pretty much cross-cultural humanly defined, um, but when life goes along according to what we expect, it's a lot easier to handle. And when it's off time, it's not, yeah. So here are a few examples of what I think we could. So we, we, we just for example, we get a client with comes to see us or is assigned to us in a clinic and their presenting issue is let's say nightmares or anxiety 
and we do an assessment and we find that they lost child died or um, they lost a spouse or they lost a, a, another intimate partner or a pet. But we wonder if some of their anxiety or maybe some of their um, nightmares has to do with the loss. How do we know if they have really resolved that loss or not? So one of the signs that they have resolved their loss is that they can think about and talk about the loss without wrenching pain. So for example, a client of mine who did lose her son was able to talk about having her son um, without breaking down into copious tears, was sad, was a little tearful, but not weeping uncontrollably that they have done some resolution of that loss. Um, they can talk about the loss with congruent affect. So do, for example, this client, she could talk about her son with wistfulness, not a blank detachment or not kind of manically going into joking, <clears throat> but that the affect, the emotion was congruent with the loss of her son, that her son had died. Um, they don't idealize or demonize the lost person. So sometimes we'll hear about someone who's lost something or, and they'll just say, well, he was horrible anyway. Well, he was a he was like a bad seed, um, but also not talking about them as like the perfect, uh, what I, he was going to, he was taking, you know, medical school classes, and he was going to be the most beautiful, successful kind of person. So they can talk about the lost person with, yeah, he, I really miss him. He was wonderful. And, you know, he shouldn't have been, you know, using those drugs or, or been not wearing a seatbelt or that kind of thing. And that they can invest in new attachments. They're not completely isolating themselves. So those are some signs that a person has worked through some grief. Some signs that suggest that they're getting stuck would be here. So having a major depression after several months. In the first few months after a loss, a person may normally look significantly depressed. But after several months, and I'm not going to put a number on the several, because that is going to vary widely. But preoccupation with guilt or worthlessness is probably a sign more of depression than of grief. So guilt is not generally a normal and healthy part of grieving, except where the person has done something that is appropriate, they are appropriately feeling guilty. Um, like if they actually contributed to the loss which sometimes clients have, and we need to help them work through their real guilt and not reassure them a, a way out of that. A lack of progressing through a range of feelings. So all those different rubrics that I gave you, some kind of progression with the range of feelings versus getting stuck with just anger or just sadness or just denial. Prolonged bodily or psychosomatic symptoms. So when a client has various psychosomatic symptoms, it's really important that we find out when they started. And if it's coincident or closely coincident with 
a loss, and these continue for uh, quite a long time, that is a sign, potentially a sign of unresolved grief. Refusing to talk about the loss suggests some lack of resolution. Exaggerated reaction to a smaller loss, and that would be variable, what's a smaller loss, but, um, you know, one example of that would be a client I had, and, and, and this isn't to undervalue the, uh, a client who moved from her home into a nursing home. Now that's a big change and a big loss and I don't wanna undervalue that, but she was seriously depressed for a long time after moving to the home. And what there was, she was having, I think what we came to is an exaggerated loss of losing her home because when she lost her home, she lost all the memories and connections she had to her son and to her husband, both of whom had died. And she hadn't really grieved the loss of her husband or her son. So when she lost the house that had, had the place where she had lived with those two, she had a huge reaction to the loss of the house. Um, suicidal ideation or self-destructive actions would be a sign of complication that really needs intervention. A few more, unable to talk about the loss without fresh grief, constantly talking about the loss, um, not parting or at least working with parting with the lost person's possessions, imitating the deceased person, like taking on, some taking on of mannerisms of the lost person might be a way of incorporating that person into your life. But um, <clears throat> I had one client whose husband was dying of cancer and he also had emphysema and used an, a, an oxygen tank. And when I started with her, she told me that she needed the oxygen tank. And so she wouldn't, there's a lot of things she wouldn't do because she needed the oxygen tank. It turned out when I talked to her physician that that oxygen tank was her husband's, it was not hers, but she had kind of taken on the medical symptom of him needing oxygen as a way of connecting with him. Exaggerated or misdirected anger could be anger about a loss that gets misdirected. Addictions and then mortality could be a sign of unresolved grief. Um, Unresolved grief or prolonged grief disorder is a, a, a condition that's going to be in the DSM-5-TR. I don't know when that's coming out. I don't know if anyone else knows that. Um, but there's some of the criteria for that are going to be more than 12 months since the loss. Uh, you, yearning, there's a grief, using the grief disorder scale yearning for the deceased, emotional pain, difficulties engaging in life and feelings of numbness. So some of these are some of the aspects that are considered part of prolonged grief disorder. And that's interesting that that's gonna be in the DSM. But some of the potentially problematic reactions to loss. So some of the kinds of issues we might see on first encounter with a new client could look different ways. And it may not always clear whether it's a reaction to loss or not. 
Um, and how do we kind of distinguish some of these things? So sometimes someone, it's obvious, they said we had a loss. This is when it's my issue started and we can do grief therapy and it's kind of obvious. It's similar with trauma therapy. If a client comes in saying they had a trauma, we, we go directly to work. But a lot of times I think in the work we do, we have clients that come in with anxiety or they come in with delusions or they come in with um, depression or they come in with substance abuse, different things. And we don't really know if there's a loss or a trauma that kind of precipitated complicated reaction. But sometimes those complicated reactions really are grief that didn't go through a, a quote unquote healthy or normal grieving process. So um, Robert Niemeyer, who I mentioned earlier, came up with this one way of kind of look, trying to understand some of the differences between depression, PTSD, and complicated grief. And I thought this table is kind of helpful. Um, one of the hallmarks of depression is fe a feeling of feeling worthless. Um, and there can often be kind of a sense of anhedonia, not feeling, not feeling pleasure in anything. Um, and having a tendency to ruminate on negative events and their memory is often disruptive. They don't really remember a lot from the past or they have problems, interrupted memory. Someone that has PTSD is more likely to see themselves as vulnerable than as worthless. And they're more um, preoccupied with fear and panic than with loss of pleasure. Um, they have a tendency to avoid trauma reminders rather than in depression, people kind of ruminate on negative events. And their memories, they have intrusive memories, flashbacks, nightmares. Um, someone with complicated grief is more likely to perceive themselves as alone, to feel this really strong sense of loneliness. <clears throat> and they may seek comfort in connecting to the past of what was lost. And they may have a more hyperactive memory. So this is just a little um, kind of helpful uh, thing to kind of help us try to distinguish between these, these three different conditions. Um, I just wanna mention, I, I imagine you all know this, but um, suicidal ideation is not a symptom of normal grief, and we want to be assess our clients to see if they have suicidal ideation when they are grieving. Um, it, it, it does indicate that there's a problem. So we need to, as, as you all know, assess for a client's ideation plan, means, and intent, and offer empathy for the client's pain. I think we want to help keep them safe, but we also wanna help them not feel alone with their pain. So if they are feeling suicidal, um, while one part is to help them come up with a, a safety plan, I think it's really important that we offer empathy for their pain as well. Um, and then 
you know, as we would treat anybody with suicidal ideation, we want to increase frequency of contact and consider whether hospitalization is necessary. Okay, so I want to go through some various factors that contribute to the grief process. And I, I think the reason I want to go into some detail on this is when you work with someone in grief therapy and they have lost you know, a certain person in their life, the meaning of that loss varies depending on the role of who that person was in their life. As, you know, was mentioned earlier, someone who lost their child, the meaning of that, because it is off time and it is not expected, it has a different meaning than losing a parent. Um, or a grandparent where there's more expectations that that person would die before you. So, but some of the meaning that gets lost when someone with a uh, an intimate partner is lost, dies or is lost, one of the things that gets lost is a sense of gender identity, sexuality, worth, security. So an example would be a client we had in our clinic um, an older Latino man whose wife died. And he, one of the things that he, he doesn't feel like his role as a man has a place. And so in addition to missing her, he is missing a sense of who he is as a man um, and, and a sense of worth as well as missing sexuality um, and a sense of kind of enduring security. So those are some of the meanings that we would want to help a client address, mourn for, and they may or may not want to fulfill those or be able to fulfill some of those roles in other ways as they come to kind of a, a resolution that, that may or may not be possible. They may or may not want that. When family members like siblings are lost, die, um, what can go missing is sort of a reliable alliance. Um, so when you think about a sibling, a sister, a brother, people have had that relationship most of their life. You know, they may be their whole life. And to not have that is kind of changes the perspective on the world to not have, not, this isn't always true, but there's a, a sense of, well, when I get old and if I need help, I can at least turn to my siblings, my, my sister, my brother. Um, friends, so an example would be a client. So friends, when you losing friends, there's a sense of losing social integration, social network, social support, um, camaraderie. So when a client of ours was aging, getting older and older and getting very old into their 90s, they, friends died and the, the isolation increased. And while that's kind of considered on time and normal, um, a sense of not having someone to chat with, someone to have fun with is lost. So coworkers, when people retire or people's colleagues or professional um, connections die or move away, 
there's a sense of worth that people often get from their work. And when their coworkers are gone, their, a sense of worth is lost. When a, a teacher dies um, or a mentor, there's a sense of guidance that is, is lost. And then when offspring, children die, the, in addition to missing the child, in addition to potential feelings of guilt um, and loss, there's this opportunity for nurturance, like not having someone to take care of you in your old age, or an opportunity for legacy of passing on your things, your teaching. So those are some of the things we want to help our clients as we go through grief therapy, help them talk about their feelings about losing and process the meaning of having those kinds of losses. So another factor that impacts the grief process is the quality of the attachment to the, that person or thing. These, I'm talking a lot about attachments to people and loss of people, but these can very much be applied to things, abilities, capabilities in the person. So when the quality of attachment was ambivalent, um, some of these, these things make it harder to grieve. So for example, I had a client, a woman who was very anxious, very anxious. And her husband had died, I think a couple of years before I started to see her. And it sounded like the anxiety really got more when after her husband died. I guess she had been somewhat of an anxious person before that. Um, and she talked to me about, well, he died and it was sad, um, but she had already grieved for him. But as we talked, I could tell that she had a lot of feelings that she hadn't expressed. And it was really hard for her to, to talk about. Um, and at first she said, talked about how much she missed him. But as we talked further, it turns out that she was also really angry at him for affairs that he had had, which she did not re reveal for several months as we got started. And she had a very mixed feelings. She really loved him, but she was really angry and estranged with him because of his infidelity. And that was really hard for her to talk about, but contribute to how she was stuck in the grieving process. Dependency, ex excessive, I, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'll use the word excessive dependency um, can also make it hard to grieve and hard to process the grief when a person's like kind of all their eggs were in one basket. They had most of their interpersonal connection was connected to this one spouse. So, so this one client, for example, was very, didn't have a lot of friends, spent most of her time with her husband. And when he died, so much was lost. She didn't have other people to be connected with. Um, I, I think the strength and meaning of the attachment. So that's similar to the dependency, a little bit different. But when, when um, a client of mine, her mother died, this was a client, uh, probably a 35, 40 year old woman. When her mother died, also her, her world was just like lost. She hadn't really developed very many 
other attachments in life. Um, I know in our clinic, we've had several middle-aged, young, old people whose parent have died and they've never really learned to be in the world without their mother or their father, which leaves them with a lot of grief that, and, and a lot to, to, of work to do to help them develop a life. Um, and unresolved anger and guilt. So one thing we'll talk a lot about in our last session is clients that get really stuck in guilt um, and which sometimes unresolved anger is what's underneath the guilt. But a client of mine whose spouse, well, intimate partner, I guess you could say, died um, kind of precipitously uh, from a heart condition. Um, she just felt so guilty that she hadn't saved him, that she hadn't gotten him, made him go to the doctor, hadn't um, gotten him to 911 sooner and was just stuck in the guilt for a long time. And it was hard to get her to move through it, but we eventually got to some real anger that she had towards him for drinking and not taking care of his own medical condition. And that unresolved anger really and guilt was very hard to help her move through the grief process. Um, additional factors that we'll want to explore when we're working on grief therapy with people is, and this isn't always easy to get to, especially I think with our more seriously mentally ill clients, but to the extent that we can understand what kind of security they did or didn't have in their early relationships, what, what their attachment style was like, did they have a secure attachment with a significant caregiver or were, did they not have security in their early significant relationships, which is often true with kinds of clients I know we see. Um, did they have any early losses that never got resolved early in their developmental history? How losses were dealt with when they were growing up or not dealt with will set them up for having a harder time or an easier time going through a normal grief process. And a lot of times our clients are grieving something recent, but it is kind of a complication or on top of lack of resolution of early loss in earlier in life. So the, those, these kind of early losses and early attachment relationships will play a, a big role in how harder or easier it is for clients to grieve current losses. Um, the current social context is important. And this is like one thing that comes up with the pandemic, the presence or absence of a social network to share grief. One of the reasons we're gonna talk about cultural rituals with grief is I think in a healthy grieving, normal grieving, there's a lot of social network that helps rally around a person um, in almost all different cultural grief rituals, there's some degree of people coming around. And for instance, during the pandemic, a lot of people had to grieve alone. Um, and that really added complications. There are a lot of griefs that our clients have had that they have born a lot, born, use different word, um, bear, 
that's the past tense of there, born, um, alone because they, they couldn't speak of it. So abortions, miscarriages, suicides, adoptions, they're secret unspeakable losses that I think quite a few of our clients have experienced something, some really significant losses that feel too shameful um, to talk about. And sometimes those are really behind some of their current symptoms. So additional factors that we wanna take into account, circumstantial factors like expected or sudden, um, losses that a person prepares for can be a little bit less harsh. That's not necessarily true, but preparing for a loss can help a person grieve slowly over time. So, you know, the difference between someone that has a long cancer diagnosis versus a short cancer diagnosis to death, the difference can be, you know, significant in, in terms of a person's reaction when someone's had the time to prepare um, and it's more expected. When there's trauma involved in the loss, it's something that shouldn't have happened. Um, it makes it harder to grieve. When someone quote unquote dies of a ripe old age um, or dies in their sleep of a ripe old age, it's a little more, people are more able to, to, to be come to acceptance than when a young person dies in war or a you know, terrible shooting, um, which, you know, it's just very traumatic, as we know from this past weekend and just from ongoing things. Um, the sheer number of losses, both simultaneously and historically, I know we have clients who have experienced, who are, are living in, in settings where the losses just keep coming. That has happened during the past couple of years with COVID for many people when we have clients that have had a lot of losses, either all at once or over time, we have to go very slowly in helping them talk. And sometimes they've had so many losses, they cannot, they just cannot process them all. Um, but we can help them with some degree of processing loss. Uh, as was mentioned earlier, the loss of a child, let's say versus the loss of a parent, on time versus off time. Bernice Newgarten kind of coined those terms of on time losses versus off time and the processing of them. Um, yeah, um, is much harder when they're off time. But that's a concept we can bring up with our clients. Ambiguous losses. So um, a, a, a therapist I heard speaking recently talked about the myth of closure so that's kind of one thing you can think about. Do we get closure from losses or do we not ever get closure? And you'll hear people say different things about this. I think we can come to some kind, help clients come to some kind of resolution um, or some kind of way of living with the loss. And there may be some closure, but there might not be closure, like really closing. Um, it may be that it stays open for the rest of your life, but again, the rest of life can grow in its importance and the, the strength of the loss can decrease. And then there's lots of different cultural norms. 
There's a lot of similarity between different cultural norms, but some differences. So um, I kind of want to go, I think this is where we're going to have a, a short breakout group. So I want to talk about some of the grief rituals in different cultures. So the word culture, as we know, there's so many aspects of culture. Um, I kind of want to think about religious and um, places of origin, maybe you'd say. Um, so background and religion. <laughs> Religions do tend to give us a lot of our grief rituals. Um, and I think there really can be um, instructive for how we might want to help take a client through a grieving process or incorporate into our therapy. Um, while some of our clients are not particularly religious, may or may not be strongly into their um, ethnic culture. On the other hand, they're influenced by what they grew up with and what they saw around them, whether they continue to hold on to it or not. They've been influenced by what they learned from in growing up or and currently. So I think knowing some of the grief rituals in various cultures can help us potentially help clients, you know, develop rituals to help them grieve. You know, for clients that have had a lot of losses during the pandemic and didn't get to participate in rituals, we might want to reenact rituals or recommend or suggest that they find family or communities to stage rituals now, later on. Um, so these are just some of the cultures. Culture has to do with, you know, gender, sexual um, orientation, um, profession. There's lots of aspects of culture. Um, but what I'd like for us to do now is to break into groups. Um, Christina is going to put us put you into groups of five, and we'll have ten minutes. But if you could discuss amongst yourselves, how does your culture, and you can define the word culture any way you want, family, background, race, ethnicity, age, region of the country, um, religion, gender, sexual, I think put the word religion in that sentence, but it should be there. Influence what you have learned about how to grieve. So I would love to hear a little bit about what you all discussed something that um, I thought was kind of like reflected in what numerous people were saying um, was just the emphasis on uh, grieving with other people. Mm -hmm. No one really talked about grieving alone. Yeah. So family and friends. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think that's pretty cross-cultural um, and really, really important and tough when really tough when, well, circumstances prohibit that like in the past couple of years, uh, but also when person's personality or, or mental, you know, makeup makes it hard for them to interact with other people around it. So I mentioned, um, I really thought it was interesting how some people in their families after losing a loved one out of respect will not participate or attend any events or parties. Uh-huh. 
Um, someone also said it was interesting to hear the similarities and individual differences, but even within groups. Yeah. Uh huh. Yes, for sure. Even within cultural groups, there are differences. Uh huh. Um, someone just added, I learned about the practice of animal visitation after a death, which was very interesting. Animal visitation. Okay. That reminds me of, of a client I have who says when a bird or a butterfly or an animal comes to them that they feel a message from their deceased loved one. I don't know if that's what was meant there, but that might might be something. All right, so let me go through some of the rituals. And <clears throat> I think we can learn from this one, you know, if our client does identify or has from their growing up identified with one of these groups, we could propose to try to take into, incorporate some of this into the grief work. But also I think we can learn from different cultural and religious perspectives, what might be helpful to somebody else. Not so much in a religious way, but the patterning of interactions and rituals might be really important to somebody else without the kind of religious overtones of it. So in the Jewish, religion, the body is supposed to be buried right away within a day or two, not later. And it's supposed to be buried. Although, you know, with time, some people have gone to cremation. For the seven day period right after they, uh, Jewish people sit Shiva, they're sitting Shiva right after the burial. The Kaddish, which is a prayer is said every day. And the family, the immediate family does no cooking um, but other parts of the community bring them food. When the family, then the family after seven days, wait, the family then says Kaddish every day for 30 days. Mourning is expected to last for one year. And then the Kaddish may be said once a week for the whole year. And then on the one year anniversary, the tombstone is unveiled at a special ceremony. So part of what I think is, and I like to start with this one, just to, because there's more intensive um, family connection right away, and then it gradually decreases over the first year. And something is done every day for a while, and then once a week, and then the first year anniversary is marked in a very special way, in that the tombstone is unveiled. And, you know, a lot of a lot happens in that first year of mourning and grieving. And I find this very true for many, many different kinds of people. When they come around to the one year following the loss of somebody, there's a certain piece of closure, not complete closure, but there's a certain, certain resolution that comes with going through a whole full year um, and I think marking that first year in some way is really important, whether a person's Jewish or not. Um, that first year carries a lot of meaning. And the, the, the presence of some spirituality or some ritual with saying certain words of prayer over and over again, every day, every week, um, once a year, so on. Um, a Catholic <clears throat> approach to grieving is often when a person is dying, 
a person is supposed to receive their last communion from a priest. And it's considered very, very important. And when that isn't able to be done, that can be a serious loss. The family gathers to remember the deceased the evening before the funeral, and there may be a wake. So in the Catholic tradition, there may actually be a party um, celebrating the person who is deceased. The rosary is a you know set kind of prayer that is prayed. And um, the one month anniversary is marked with a mass. So again, you know, right away, there's a lot of contact. And then at the one month, there is a ritual that helps the, um, the, the survivors. The family may observe one year of mourning by wearing black for a year, you know, that may be done. Um, and then on the anniversary mass is said and on successive anniversaries, the first year anniversary and then the second, third, fourth, and so on. And lighting candles can be a, a, a part of, of remembering and grieving. So candles can be brought into various different cultural traditions. Um, Protestants often includes a period between the death of the person and a funeral. So that it's often more than longer amount of time than in the Jewish religion. Um, and the mourners show support and comfort to the family. So the extended network uh, shows support and comfort. Friends bring food. So that's another common theme of food, you know, comfort. Bringing food's a necessity, but it's also a comfort. Um, in the Protestant, in some religions, the body might be viewed before burial. And there's not so many rituals prescribed after the funeral. And I think some of our more Protestant clients really can benefit from us bringing in, again, not the religious aspect, but some recognizing when one week is over, one month is over, one year is over, and finding some kind of rituals for that person, you know, even if it's not in their cultural religious history, it can be helpful to kind of bring some of that in through the therapy. Um, in Eastern Orthodox Christian, the dying person should receive a visit from the priest to have confession and communion. Traditionally, the family would wash and clothe the body. Um, I'm not sure how much that's done now, but a service called Panikita is a prayer service for the deceased. So again, a certain set of prayers. Um, the family and friends read the Psalms and pray for three days. Um, burial is preferred to cremation. And then there are specific rituals for the third, ninth and 40th days. And I think having this kind of, again, successive with slightly increasing amounts of time where there are certain rituals that are done could be helpful for maybe all people, many people. Um, and again, the one week and then the one year are important moments to remember and, and ceremonialize. In Islamic traditions, the body is washed and buried in the ground within a day. So again, very quickly, friends are encouraged, are to encourage the family to talk about how the death occurred. So this is like kind of really bringing in talking about what happened. Um, the family is not left alone. So the grieving, the, the real, the people close to the grief are not 
left alone and food is brought to them. Then 40 days later, there's a religious prayer and then at 52 days, um, and there tends to be a lot of emotion expressed outwardly. Then a Buddhist rituals, Buddhists may believe in rebirth. They may want special meditations used at the time of death. Cremation is often what is done with the body. There's a four day period during which special prayers are said and may um, be understood to help the deceased to a better rebirth. Prayers are said weekly or every 10 days for the first 49 days. And then after 100 days, a, a prayer ceremony is conducted. So a different set of timing, but again, these successive time periods. Hindu um, rituals, usually there's cremation. There are 13 days of mourning. And scriptures indicate that prolonged grieving can hold the deceased back. So they may discourage a lot of lamenting, which is sort of an interesting um, blending of kind of emotional and religious meaning. Um, and then just to kind of think about certain ethnic and, and country backgrounds, <clears throat> um, Latin Americans may be Catholic, may not be Catholic, but for some, the rosary is said, um, they may say the rosary every month, for a year, the surviving ones might make promises or commitments to this deceased, which they take seriously. And in some countries, yearly on the day of the dead, deceased loved ones are remembered. So that you know, may be an important ritual for some of our Latin American clients. African-American clients may express grief with great emotion, possibly with physical manifestations of emotion, may hold a homegoing service to celebrate the deceased person going to be with Jesus and to be with past friends and family. And they may believe in the living dead, deceased person's spirits living in the memories of those who are still living. And I think that's a concept that could be incorporated for people of various cultural backgrounds of how the spirit of the person who's gone is still alive in our memories. Asian Americans may maintain more stoic attitudes, may create shrines in the home, um, including a picture, a plaque, and other items from a Buddhist perspective, potentially, possibly. And talking about the death may be thought to be taboo, and maybe a lot of, um, of thoughts against talking a lot about the death. Northern Europeans tend to have a gathering with family and friends right after the death, but the grieving may not be very verbal or very emotional. And sometimes we may wanna help incorporate more emotional expression for people of Northern European descent. Um, and I, I don't have a lot on Native American, but death may be seen as part of the journey to another world. Grieving may be more private. Um, uh, you know, we could, I could use some more elaboration here. Um, so we've got, yeah, just a more slide here. So then um, Middle Eastern may be more emotionally expressive, may follow Islamic, Jewish, or Christian religious traditions. So that's kind of my last slide for today. Um, any comments on the last series of slides about religious and ethnic kind of cultural traditions.
Anything to add that you all know that I hasn't really been mentioned that comes from maybe your own culture? Have you encountered any cultural practices that you found can hinder the grieving process? Well, I, I do think some of the kind of Northern European not talking about it can hinder the grief process. I think sometimes it can be hard to really be culturally sensitive with Asian Americans to talk about it when talking about emotions might not be culturally congruent. Um, those are a couple things I've noticed that kind of getting people to process loss when it's not culturally acceptable to really have a lot of emotion. Um, there's be a couple things, then maybe sometimes people somaticize more and helping them work it through can be more challenging. That's just a couple things that come to mind. All right, well, thank you for your participation and your attention. I really appreciate it. Um, best to you all for the week and I'll see you next Wednesday morning.